Washington, it's Documental, Mapping the American States of Mind. I'm your host and producer, Whitney Fishburne. In this episode of Documental, I speak with Paula J. Kaplan, a clinical and research psychologist at Harvard University's Hutchins Center. She's the author of several books, including They Say You're Crazy, How the World's Most Powerful Psychiatrists Decide Who's Normal. Dr. Kaplan is also the recipient of the International Society for Ethical Psychology and Psychiatry's 2019 Lifetime Achievement Award. Dr. Kaplan takes a bold stance against psychiatry. She believes the field causes more harm than good when it comes to suffering and that it all begins with diagnosis. I find some of Dr. Kaplan's claims problematic, as you will hear in this episode. However, I do believe she's utterly correct in her belief that the problems which do exist in psychiatry will not be adequately addressed from the inside. I, I'm ask, I've asked you to be on the show because you are a an avid reader of Documental, for which I am very grateful, and you always Lovely. have you <laughs> thank you you always have something to say that gets me to think in response to whatever it is I've written, and. Um, I would say that the nucleus of your comments to my commentary are to do with your steadfast belief that the mental health system is not only unethical, but outright harmful. First of all, let me say some, some individual therapists are terrific and there are people uh, to whom I will refer someone who's suffering um, if I think they can be helped. Um, but here's what happened to me. Um, I was uh, in 1985, I was training graduate students in, to be clinical psychologists and I was using what's called the DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's it's what they call the psychiatrist Bible. And what right. it is, this five pound book <laughs> that has hundreds and hundreds of categories that are presented as mental or psychiatric disorders and mental illnesses. And I was teaching it as though it were scientifically based because I believed the advertising that the American Psychiatric Association, the, the publisher, uh, put out about it, that it was scientifically grounded. And I, I remember saying to my students, isn't it wonderful? People have gone through all of the research that's been done about the varieties of human suffering. And they've culled through it and they've picked out what we can learn from this. And they've put it all together in this book, which is going to help us help reduce people's suffering. And then I wrote a book called The Myth of Women's Masochism, and it's a long story I won't go into now, but through that, I ended up getting involved on the inside of how they put together that book of hundreds and hundreds of ways that supposedly just about all of us are mentally ill. And I was horrified because one of my specialties is research methods. So I really care about science, about doing research right as a specialist in research methodology and co-author of a textbook about it that's in its third edition, interpreting the results responsibly and ethically. And that, that isn't what happens with making up categories of psychiatric disorder. Because let me tell you this, people suffer in a wide variety of ways and they deserve to have help in alleviating that suffering. And people differ from each other. Some are just queer, quirky, some get called weird, really bizarre, and nobody should be denied help in having a better life. 
The problem is that where religion used to tell us what to do and, and interpret everything in terms of who's good and who's evil and who's sinful and who's not, now the psychiatric establishment has taken over not only psychiatry but psychology and to a great extent social work and counseling and lay people's interpretations of what happened. People will say, oh, you know, her husband of 40 years uh, walked out on her and she now has major depressive disorder or right. that person came back from Afghanistan having seen their buddy blown up by an IED and they're devastated. They have post-traumatic stress disorder. In other words, we're taking everything and we're doing what I call psychiatrizing it. We're taking everything other than joy, peace, and happiness and calling it a mental illness. Now that would be okay if it helped us help people. And that would be okay if it didn't take our attention away from the real causes of human suffering. But what's happened because of the, the, the people who write the DSM and their big lobby group, the American Psychiatric Association, they are in bed with big pharma and now they have pretty much persuaded people that the truth is that human suffering is caused by chemical imbalances in the brain. You've seen the commercials for the pills, but they say you may have a chemical imbalance and our drug may help correct it because they know, they know it's not true. Um, so well, let me, let me just stop you there if I, if I might. First of all, I think it's probably um, a good idea for me to disclose my relationship to the field of psychiatry, because not perhaps not all of my readers and, and my listeners know that I was the uh, editor for a psychiatric journal. I also was a reporter for Clinical Psychiatry News. And, um, you know, I, I would actually say that I count among some of my greatest mentors to be straight up psychiatrists and neuropsychopharmacologists. I spent about 10 years working with them, and I agree with you that many of them are very, very good at what they do, and they care very much. I, I would say, I can, I could say more often, particularly those who are clinical psychiatrists um, and not just researchers, but um, I really do believe that, that the majority of the psychiatrists that I interacted with were very compassionate, and they were looking for ways to alleviate suffering. So um, I come at it from that perspective. But there is a, a, another story. There's a kind of the genesis to my getting involved in psychiatry was I was catatonically depressed. I didn't know at the time it had a clinical name, but I was extremely depressed and um, had been more than once in my life. And it was the point where I wouldn't get off the stairs after I'd seen my child off to school in the mornings. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even prior to that, I wouldn't get out of bed. Um, until I had a friend say, get out of bed or I'm going to call the ambulance and <laughs> you're going to have to deal with that. <laughs> so um, it was it was a really rough time and um, I won't get into all the details. I've written about it before and I can really put the link at the bottom of this podcast. But ultimately what I decided was I am framing what I see in my life in a way that keeps me depressed. So I'm going to try and frame my life differently. I'm going to see things differently. And just mm -hmm. making the decision to believe different things wasn't, mm -hmm. wasn't all it took by any mm -hmm. means, but, um, but it, was, it was what I needed to do. It was the catalyst. And I had thought about therapy and I had gone to a psychotherapist, not a psychoanalyst, but a psychotherapist um, who was actually weirdly enough, she was a spiritual counselor as well. She was a, um, she was a reverend. She had an MDiv and a PsyD. 
and um, probably a good thing. No, she wanted to put she wanted to diagnose me as having bipolar disorder and to put me on oh, and, and she wanted me to take medication and I said, but but that's ridiculous. I'm not that. I know I'm not that. I just know that this particular thing I'm trying to explain to you, lady, is the problem. And and she said, but you are in so much pain, you can't really do it. And I was like, yeah, that's what I'm here to talk oh. about. So what ended up happening was I just said, obviously, I can't find, and I had talked to other people, I can't find somebody who can actually get where I'm coming from, which is I believed I was having an existential crisis and that what I needed to do was find meaning. And it was that day sitting on the stairs that I said, okay, the way I'm living my life right now has zero meaning to me at all, but there is one thing I can do to start finding meaning and just bringing everything back to that, and that was to see that I was a mom and that my son needed his mother to be present. So from that, everything kind of went out from it from there, but what I wanted to do was really understand why psychiatry would have given me that <sighs> answer, even though she wasn't a psychiatrist, but she said she worked with them and she would be able to connect me with one. And I had already I had already had enough um, failures with psychiatry as, you know, I, I, everyone kept saying, you're going to need an antidepressant. And I really believed that wasn't true. And, and to this day, I never took anything. So um, that oddly was when I decided I would become an expert to the best of my ability in psychiatry. And I won't, I, really, I, this is one of these weird, miraculous, I can't explain it things. Through a very strange series of events, I ended up as the editor of this journal and got to work with um, members of the DSM-5 mood group um, on a routine basis. I mean, like weekly, I was in conversations with these people. And I got to see the inner workings of psychiatry. So I do have a lot of sympathy for your perspective. I, 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 uh, I have a lot of lived experience, as they call it. But I also have the perspective of knowing these people personally, working with them as colleagues, and understanding that the, you know, they have their pressures, they have their biases, and they also care. So that's that's my side. I didn't mean to make so much of a, a dent in your time, but um, I do think it's important that people know I, I'm not here to fire away at psychiatry, but I do want to understand because I agree there are ways in which it's hurting, and and I think if we can find ways to stop the system from hurting people, that would be a really great achievement. <laughs> it, it would. I mean, there you know, unfortunately, the, the system is not going to stop. The system it resists um, change and. They are, there are these guilds, and as you said, I mean, it just breaks my heart when I when I heard you say, and this woman had a degree in, in divinity, and she, I thought, oh, good, how wonderful, because so much of suffering is exactly what you described. It's the lack of meaning in life, or yeah. it's a lack of connection, it's isolation, and these are these are not brain chemistry problems, and you don't want to put somebody on drugs because they are they help some people and they have been proven to harm vastly more people. In fact, it's been shown now, there's a, the expert on this is Irving Kirsch, Dr. Irving Kirsch. If somebody puts you on a so-called antidepressant drug, even for a short period of time, just once, you become more likely to feel downhearted and so on in the future. And so as you experienced, even clergy are taken in by what they think is the science of psychiatry and it just isn't there. And I, I'm 72, I have spent most of my career seeing people whose lives have been destroyed and a few people who were helped by 
um, by the mental health system, but far more often their lives have been destroyed. And that's when we need to protect. We don't need to protect the ones who are helped. There is a lot of clinical data out there. And, you're, and so explain to me and our audience why the clinical data is not really scientific. Uh, why it isn't? I don't know why it isn't. I can explain. I can give you an example of how unscientific it is. Um, and I'll try and make this quick. It's rather hilarious and also upsetting at the same time. When I got involved uh, with the people who were writing the DSM and deciding, that, because they make it up, they, they take the varieties of human suffering. And it's, I say it's like looking up at the, at the sky at night and you see the stars. And if somebody says, oh, you see, you see these stars, that's Orion the hunter. It makes it very hard for you to look at those stars again and not think you see Orion the hunter. But you could actually divide them up in a lot of different ways. Well, the same thing with the kinds of human suffering. But so what, they, what happens is, and it's happened one edition after another after another. Lots of books have been written about this, not just mine. I'm the only person who was ever an insider and then resigned in horror at what I wait, saw. Wait, wait, so you were the only um, non-psychiatrist ever included in any of no. the work groups? No, I, no, they've included some psychologists because psychiatrists are not do wait, research, but they're not trained. Say that again. I lost you. you like, I think you hit your microphone. Psychiatrists are not trained in doing research or interpreting it. Psychologists are. And so they always bring in a few psychologists that helps add to their credibility. I wasn't the only psychologist. I'm the only person who has ever been involved on a DSM committee, and I was on two, who has then resigned after seeing what goes on in there. Wait, I, I have to take exception with your that psychologists are the only ones that do that are trained to do research. I don't quite understand what you're saying because that's, that's not true. A PhD, no, I, in the of the mental health professionals. If you have a doctorate in social work or a doctorate in psychology, um, then you've been trained to do research. If you have an MD, which is what psychiatrists have. You, you don't have to be trained to do research. You don't have to do research yourself. You're not necessarily taught how to interpret it. In fact, I was asked to speak at an American Psychiatric Association convention in the mid 80s. And one of the psychiatrists who was going to be speaking in the same session came up to me and said, you know, the way you're talking about um, our research uh, not being well done, he said, you know, we're not taught to do that in medical school. Well, that's true, but a lot of the uh, researchers in psychiatry have dual degrees. Not all of them, but oh, many, of, many of them do. Sure, but that's not the MD. Some are MD-PhDs. I um, just wanted to clear. You said it, it sounded very categorical that psychiatrists are not trained to do research. And, and I take your point that as an MD in med school, that's not their training. But I would say that there are plenty of psychiatrists doing research who've actually had yeah. training. That's all. Yes. And, you can, and anybody, a layperson, I could teach a layperson how to do good research or how to look at reports of research and tell if the research was well designed and well carried out and responsibly interpreted. Um, but in any case, what I was saying wasn't about that. It was that I was the only person who was a member of two DSM committees and then resigned and wrote about it, you know, having been an insider, because I wasn't just guessing about what they do. And so you asked me to address 
the question of, is it scientific? So here's what I found out. Let me give an example. When I got involved with the DSM, it was partly because two of the psychiatrists um, on a fishing trip, two men, had thought up, thought up the category of premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Now this isn't you get bloated, you get breast tenderness, you have chocolate cravings, you get a little irritable. This was to be a psychiatric disorder once a month. And they were going to put it in the next edition of the DSM. Well, some, and they had a list as they always do for each of their categories. They have a list of, do you have to meet these criteria? Here's a list of say eight, you have to meet five. All of that's arbitrarily chosen. And so what some, um, some women researchers did, really excellent researchers, was they took the list of criteria for this supposed new disorder of PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, and they gave this checklist of quote-unquote symptoms to three groups of people. They gave it to women who said they had terrible problems premenstrually, uh, they had gave it to women who said they had no problems premenstrually, and they gave it to men. And they didn't tell them what this was about. They just said, you know, check each day for a couple of months and bring in your, your checklist. And it was things like, you know, about mood changes and food cravings and bloating and breast tenderness. Now, if there were such a thing as premenstrual dysphoric disorder, and if the DSM guys had gotten the criteria right, then of course those three groups would have responded very differently, but they didn't. And well, well, I guess the the insight that I'm having as I listen to this is is that what it goes back to what you've said before, which is that we're we're not in danger anymore. We've done it of medicalizing and pathologizing just the human condition. Everything, right, right. Yeah, and and I guess that's ultimately. I wanted you to finish the question about the science, but ultimately that's where I want to get to is, is how do we reverse this notion that everything that we experience that isn't positive, air quotes, is somehow to be treated and I'm cynical sometimes I say it's just because we want to monetize it uh, somebody's pain is an opportunity for somebody else to sell you something. But, well, it's partly that. It's partly that everybody's busy. Everybody wants silver bullets. You know, we want quick ways, quick fixes. And when we are told by somebody with an advanced degree who's supposedly a mental health expert, oh, here's what you have, here's mm -hmm. your diagnosis, and therefore, here's what you need, this drug or that drug, or electroshock, or we need to hospitalize you, or you know whatever, um, then of course it's easy to believe it unless we teach people. We should be teaching kids in school about what we're saying right now. We should be teaching them to think critically because what pains me is the thought that somebody who's suffering, let's say for, because we were talking about PMDD, let's say it's a woman who's suffering. Um, if she walks in to see a therapist and says, you know, I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling on edge or whatever, um, that if that therapist says, oh, that's a psychiatric disorder and it's premenstrual dysphoric disorder, so we're gonna put you on this psychiatric drug to fix it, mm -hmm. I want her to know, to ask, first of all, is there any solid evidence that there is such a thing as premenstrual dysphoric disorder? And is there any solid evidence that it's brain-based and therefore that this drug will help it rather than harming me? I know women 
who haven't known to ask that, and they end up trying to kill themselves with the drug they were put on because the so-called antidepressants are known to increase suicides. Well, okay, so let's finish the point about the science of this because, um, you know, there, there still are a lot of data and there are a lot of studies that are made in service to proving that a drug is effective. There, as an aside, there, I can't think of a single study I've ever read about how to take somebody off of right. uh, an antidepressant. But um, so how, in your experience as a researcher and as somebody working with these, um, the members of the psychiatric community, how would you say they take studies and clinical data and make them look scientific? Because if they, if they weren't able to show science, it would be very hard for all the flaws that the FDA has, and I've written about them, and I believe there are some, I also know that they, these are good public servants for the most part, and these are people who care. Well, so how do they get past, how do they get bad science past uh, the regulators of the science? Okay, all right, I have to disagree with you. Some of the people at the FDA are public servants and they care. However, when Clinton, and this is not a political statement, it's just a statement about history. Mm -hmm. When Clinton was president, um, it was arranged that because drug companies were complaining that it took a long time to get new drugs approved or old drugs approved for new uses, um, it was arranged that they could pay the FDA to speed up the drug approval. So, so when one of the best studies I've ever seen done of anything showed that there was, there was nothing to support the claim that PMDD was even a real entity. So then what happened was the DSM people put it in the next edition of the DSM anyway, and then some of the members of their PMDD committee went to visit the FDA. Now, with, with um, representatives of Eli Lilly. Why Eli Lilly? Well, Prozac had been on the market a long time and its patent was about to expire. And when a patent expires, then of course, other drug companies can produce similar drugs or even the same drug and charge less for it. So then Lilly stood to lose a huge amount of money because Prozac was such a big seller. So if you, if they could get Prozac approved for another condition, they get an extension on the patent. So <laughs> at the FDA meeting, there's the drug company that stands to gain millions or billions of dollars from this approval and the women from the PMDD committee of the DSM. And then what happens is the FDA appoints a committee, they bring in people to vote on each new drug or each drug approval um, application. Whom do they bring in? In their view, they bring in the so-called experts in the field. But the people doing research on so-called PMDD were all getting money from the drug companies. So guess what? They approved Prozac to treat PMDD, which had never been shown to exist. And then Eli Lilly started producing the identical drug. They renamed it Seraphim. Sounds so feminine. And they packaged it in pink and purple instead of green and white. Yeah, but has that changed at all? So it's, we've had a lot of, of um, we've had no, a lot of reformation speak at the FDA. And would you say that it's worse or better? 
No, it's getting, it's getting worse because drug companies are getting better and better at knowing how to design studies in the most reprehensible ways. If they had been an undergraduate in one of my classes and they designed a study the way they design studies of drugs that they want to get approved, they would have flunked. They're, they're, I don't, we don't even have time to go into the details, but let me just say, if you imagine that you're a drug company and you want to know if your drug helps people who, for example, are feeling sad or very afraid or very confused. Think about how you would design that study in a way that would reach the truth, that would give you really honest answers about is it helpful and is it ever harmful? Anything that they can do to skew the results they have done. It, let me just give you a couple of examples. Um, they will have, they give money to very high status universities to do the studies. And so they have them sign agreements. We will not publish the results unless the drug company agrees. So they have routinely suppressed studies that either showed that the drug wasn't effective or that it was harmful or both. There have been lawsuits that have brought this out. There is a brilliant new book out about one of these drugs, and Eli Lilly, as a matter of fact, called the Zyprexa Papers. Everybody should get it. Everybody should read it. I wrote a review of it, and it's in Mad in America uh, online. It's phenomenal. It's by Jim Gottstein, G-O-T-T-S. T-E-I-N. And um, so, so the drug companies hire people specifically to design research show that it, so that it will make their drug look good and approvable by the FDA. And then when, it, when the FDA approved Prozac to treat PMDD, I called uh, Dr. Susan Wood, who was head of the women's section of the FDA, and I said, how could you all do this? And she said, we have to rely on the professional associations to tell us what the conditions are. Mm. And I said, the American mm. Psychiatric Association and Eli Lilly are not professional associations. The APA is a lobby group, and its aim is not to help people, it's to increase the power, territory, and wealth of its members. And you know, Big Pharma, they are very concerned with the bottom line. And I said, there's no proof that there is such a thing as PMDD. And I said, Susan, if a drug company came to the FDA and said, we have a cure for cancer Q, you would say you've got to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is such a thing as cancer Q because we've never heard of it. But you don't do that with the psychiatric labels. So what comes to mind is um, I don't have any, I, I don't represent the psychiatric community, so I can't speak on their behalf in rebuttal to what you're saying. So, but I will say to listeners, I do have a psychiatrist who is a member of the APA who's going to come on next month to talk about schizophrenia in particular and the dearth, the dearth of research. Um, he is a specialist and he's actually, he is a researcher. So um, I hope, I hope that before he comes on, you will read Jeffrey Poland's chapter about the awful research on schizophrenia uh, in the book called Bias in Psychiatric Diagnosis. Um, I will do that and I, and I will bring up some of these questions with, with my guests then. But one thing that I did want to put out there and just, it's, I think you'll agree with this. Mm -hmm. um, so what I think you're describing is really a classic at its bare, barest bones, it's a classic model of advertising where you 
or selling. It's just selling. You decide on a fishing boat, let's come up with a problem that will sell to people as a need that they need to fix. And then we'll sell them the fix and then we'll make some money. And I was just thinking about, um, I was thinking about something. I was listening to a conversation the other day about how advertising makes us feel so badly about ourselves, which is something that I've come to the conclusion in the last year of writing in Documental and understanding that there is a large component, which we're going to get to, of how economic policy policies and just the, um, the marketplace actually tears away at our mental health, particularly causing anxiety and depression and so forth. But this, this person was saying, you know, oh, if you look at an advertisement on television, they say, you're so fantastic, you're so beautiful, but you stink. That's why you need this deodorant. Right. So it's kind of a like, oh, you're so wonderful, but, you know, you, you get so bitchy at your period. So let's fix that. <laughs> so I just, I mean, I can see it in those terms where, you know, coming up with something and that's why I say, well, maybe, maybe there is, and it's not just psychiatry. I would say that medicine, you know, I think one of the problems we have with our healthcare system is that it's based on us outsourcing ourselves to, to this kind of fragmented way of approaching uh, wellness that used to be once upon a time where the doctor actually knew all of the, the systems and knew how they all work together, you know, the endocrine system, wow. the cardiovascular system, and so on. So I, I don't know. I, I this is why I, I care so much about this is because we're gonna shred ourselves into pieces if we continue to outsource each part of our body to groups that have an interest in perpetuating it, their importance. Yes. So, so I would I would rather find ways to keep people whole because ultimately it is a big friggin' waste of taxpayer money and time to create policies and throw money at things as our anxieties, depression, and suicide rates skyrocket if we don't address the fact that there's actually the system that requires it. That's right. That's right. And, and let me say a couple of things about that. One is that it's not just about money. It's also about power and territory and who gets to say, we know the truth. Because some of those people who even create the DSM, some of them really are trying they're just totally misguided and as an ex-patient of one of them said when all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail so if you go into this thinking everybody who's upset has brain chemistry imbalances and we got to find out what their diagnosis is and ignore the fact that it's not science and what drug to give them and ignore the fact that the research is lousy, um, then that's what you come up with. But what happens as a result of all of this is that people don't look at the real causes of human suffering. And what are they? And I want to talk specifically about anxiety and depression, because you keep mentioning those two, and they're very commonly um, uh, used. And also some of the things that people think, well, these really are mental illnesses, and they really are brain-based, like so-called schizophrenia and so-called bipolar disorder. So let me just start with the fact that the vast majority of human suffering is caused by trauma, and that can be in the form of terrible poverty, violence, uh, sexism, racism, classism, homophobia, transphobia, ageism, ableism, and on and on and on. And I become horrified when I see one study after another coming out and it will say, oh, single mothers on welfare are likely to suffer from major depressive disorder. And I think, yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, duh. <laughs> How dare they? How 
dare they say that? Because that makes us think, oh, we got to get her on an antidepressant drug, not we need to help her get more financial resources. Right. We need to support her as a single mother. Well, let me just stop you there, Paula, because that, that, that is one of the things that when I was a, an editor and, a, and a, a writer and a reporter in medical, um, in, in clinical medicine, I used to sometimes stop and think, why is that, why is somebody paying a lot of money to ask that question and then answer it? People who are in dire financial straits are going to feel depressed. Why is that? Why is that a revelation? There's so much duh in, in a lot of this science where you would just say common sense would say help the lady get a job or help, help her get ed educated so she can get a job. It's that teach people to fish thing. Okay, but as soon as this is, I've seen this happen all the time, as what happens to common sense and humane thinking and logic is that when you bring in a psychiatric label, all those other things go out the window because the experts have said major depressive disorder. And how do these studies get done? They get done by people who have a stake in perpetuating either the psychiatric and mental health traditional system or, or big pharma or both or big hospitals, you know, um, that's another part of it as well. And the insurance companies say you, in, in order for you to get help, then you've got to have a psychiatric diagnosis or we're not going to pay for it. And the schools will say, in order for your kid who's having trouble learning to read to get help, you've got to get them diagnosed with something from the DSM, a learning disability or attention deficit disorder or whatever. And I, have, I talked to a barista in a Starbucks one time. She looked so sad. She was a single mother. Her son had been diagnosed with attention deficit disorder and been ordered to take a psychiatric drug and they were doing blood tests on this kid and they wouldn't let him back in school unless the blood tests proved that his mother was making him take the drug. Yeah, I, I wanted to get to that. I'll finish the point you were making because I think ultimately that's the most important thing we need to address here, which is how um, there's almost an antitrust quality to it where there's, yes. there's this... Um, we are the ones who are calling the shots. And, and again, I don't want to just, I, I'm wary of saying psychiatry as a field is evil. I don't feel that way. I really don't. But I do. Traditional but, mental health approaches. But yes, what I, what I am disturbed by is the um, monolithic power that it has to, to create policies that then are inescapable for people who are harmed as a result. And that's well, the part where I say, what can we do to change it? Yeah. Well, I mean, for one thing, this podcast is a great start because a lot of people don't know all the, this kind of stuff. And it's good for them to have that backup, know at least some beginning questions to ask, and they're not at the mercy of the so-called experts. When we, when we talk about, um, about things like um, that people think are the real mental illnesses that are obviously brain-based, they think are obviously genetic, and that obviously need drug treatment, like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Uh, let me say something. Um, there is no science behind those either, not good science, to prove they even exist. You can take two people who are diagnosed with bipolar disorder and they don't meet the same group of criteria as each other. 
In other words, you know, the DSM say has eight criteria for bipolar disorder, and you, if you have to meet five, I don't remember the numbers for this, but if you have to meet five, those two people will not have much overlap, and the whole rest of their life experience and their personality and their resources and their strengths and weaknesses will differ from each other. But once they're both diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which has no scientific foundation whatsoever, they're gonna be put on drugs, hard drugs that are often harmful, that often cause worse kinds of problems that then get diagnosed as, oh, they're even sicker than we thought. Yeah, but you know what, I will say that this, not this administration, but we still have the same NIH director that we had under the last administration, Francis Collins, and under Francis Collins, with Thomas Insull as the director of the NIMH, the National Institute of Mental Health, um, it was a, everybody who paid any attention to when the DSM-5 came out in 2013 knew that there was this enormous conflagration between uh, the NIMH and the APA because Dr. Insull, with Dr. Collins' support, was asking, hey, could we please for the, for the things that you were just saying, Paula, could we please prove that there's actually this thing happening? And we don't really know how to prove it. So he tried to make it in the brain. He tried to take it and say, look, let's look for brain-based right. causes for this. So do you think that that impulse by the NIMH, which I'm not really sure I would say still has that strong of a trajectory at this point, but would you say that that impulse to at least ask for brain, for biologically based proof of these things was a good idea and was worth all the money that had been allocated, like $4 billion sorted. Yeah. That's, you know, that's an excellent point. Dr. Insull, head of, former head of the NIMH, right before he left to go work for Google, finally announced after all his tenure, overseeing the giving of millions and millions of dollars in grants to study DSM categories as though they were valid, he suddenly at that last moment announced that the DSM wasn't scientific. And then he said, we should be doing other things. Well, if you took a fraction of the money they have put into looking for brain-based problems for human suffering, and you put it into trying to prevent abuse and other kinds of trauma and oppression and violence it providing people homes you know i lived in canada for years providing people homes is a wonderful way to reduce suffering that often gets diagnosed as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder people do have changes in mood sometimes extreme changes in mood that's who gets diagnosed with bipolar disorder. But also some people who, for example, have a rough time at home because they're overburdened, but are happy to go back to their paid job on Mondays, so their moods change from time to time. I've seen them get diagnosed with bipolar disorder. It's totally up to the therapist to decide how much of an extreme change in moods is extreme. Well, a couple couple of things. So we didn't really end up with, he left, he did go to Google, he left Google. I'm not really, I, he's with a, another uh, life sciences company now, I've forgotten which one. But so I don't really think that ever got resolved because it, it was also um, the firestorm within the NIH and with others who were just, you know, basic community psychiatrists said, why don't you take all of that money and spend it on actual services? And so to yeah. the point that when you were in Canada and you saw that people who were homeless were given homes and the support to live their lives at a, even at just a basic level, their mental 
conditions improved greatly, even if they were so-called serious mental illnesses such as schizophrenia. I do want to come back to that because I have a lot of experience working with people with schizophrenia, and I want to tell you something about them and drugs. But the larger point is, okay, so I don't know what steam is actually behind the idea that we could find a constellation of actual biomarkers that you know, predict schizophrenia. That I, I do keep my finger on the pulse of that, and it seems like there's there's a lot of we don't know. <laughs> you know there's like well, we're trying, we don't know. But um, the idea that money could be spent, invested in taking care of people to address what are you know now there's a jargon for it. Uh, what is it? Social determinants of health. I, I have. I just did a. a I wrote a, a, a story about this for a for a publication, not my own, but for another publication, another medical publication, about what happens when you invest money in the SDOHs. Um, people get better. People get better. And 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 uh, what made me mad about what I found was that to me these are basic policy issues that as Americans, we should just obviously say, well, this is important to our society. Yeah. Let's deal with it. But that's not what's happening. What's ended up happening, and Mount Sinai in New York is a great example of this. They've just said, okay, you know what? We're really tired of the same person with so-called schizophrenia coming into our psych ED or our, ID, our ED and then having to go to the psych ward, and then we don't have enough resources once they're released. We don't have a home to send them to. We don't have somebody to make sure they take their medications. We'll just do it. And they have invested a lot of money in building homes near the campus for Mount Sinai. And then the the uh, return on the investment, uh, I think July of last year, was showing to be over 300%. They were saving that much money in yes. unrecompensed un, um, care but because they were actually taking care of these people. And I did find myself thinking, that's fantastic, and that's terrible. Why aren't we doing that? As a country, why are we not seeing this is really obvious? So I almost feel like we suffer as a nation from cognitive dissonance where we're saying, oh, we have this problem and we have to throw all this money and all this attention to it. And I say, but we know what the problem is and we know what the solution is. Why aren't we doing that? Yeah, well, we're not, we're not doing that because the guilds are so powerful, the mental health guilds and pharma. And then you see Medicare, Medicaid, um, the uh, the VA the um, the military you have to get one of those DSM labels in order to get your help paid for and the help they pay for doesn't include helping you find a place to live or a job or some meaning in your life or somebody to connect with um, and and that's why it's so powerful in that same book I mentioned bias in psychiatric diagnosis. Jeffrey Poland and I wrote a whole chapter about what keeps this kind of thing you're talking about going. And it was a very hard chapter to write because all of these different systems are so interwoven. The mm -hmm. insurance companies, um, they, they, you gotta get one of these diagnoses or we're not gonna pay for your help. And mm -hmm. so you've got well-meaning therapists who will give you a diagnosis if you're suffering and you're not getting help anywhere else and they think they can help you. They'll give you a label so that they can make a living helping you. All right, I'm not even condemning them, but I'm just saying, but that helps perpetuate this whole system as well. It sounds like, oh, you have to have special, tra specially trained knowledge in order to help. If you say, let's get them a house and, and meaning in their life and a job and friends. You know, there was, okay, so, so as far as schizophrenia goes, let's talk about that because people who, 
suffer from psychosis. They suffer. That is a, a straight up yeah. awful condition. Um, so you don't call it a disease. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that it's a disease. Wait, 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 wait. Um, some of them suffer because if they hear voices or they have delusions that are scary, of course they suffer. Others suffer because either that's happening or, and or, because people are telling them, you have to stop that, that's crazy. And there's no proof that it's a disease. When I was writing my book about the DSM, which is called They Say You're Crazy, How the World's Most Powerful Psychiatrists Decide Who's Normal, I was about to write a sentence that would go like this. Well, of course, there probably are some things that get called mental illnesses that really we do know what they are, and they're probably biologically based. And then the latest edition of one of the major psychological journals arrived, and in it was an article by one of the men who was considered one of the top experts on I'm putting it in quotes, schizophrenia. And he said, unfortunately, after all the decades of research and what people thought they knew about what gets called schizophrenia, unfortunately, it's a wastebasket term. And I've got to say this, Robert Whitaker, who's a Pulitzer-nominated investigative journalist, wrote a book many years ago called Mad in America. And what he showed was that the characteristics of what's called schizophrenia are the, what you see in the behavior of people who've been put on the drugs. These are drug effects. Now, that's not to say that some people don't hear voices or have, have beliefs that are out of touch with what other people consider reality, or, and it's not to say they don't suffer because of it. The problem is what's done about it and what's been shown in um, there's a, it's a Scandinavian country, I think I'm blocking on the name of it, is they did a study in which there were two very comparable areas, geographical areas. And they said to the mental health people in one, go ahead and do what you've been doing with people who come in with a first episode psychosis. And to the other, they said, try not to put them on drugs or leave them on drugs for a long time, just try. And they found the results were so clear. The ones that minimized drugs, or in some cases, for some people, didn't put them on drugs at all, were doing vastly better years later. And there are groups now called Hearing Voices. There's the Hearing Voices. Yeah, I've, I've seen that website, yeah. Right. And it's wonderful. And what they do is they get people together who hear voices. And instead of saying, oh, you're crazy, we have to stop you from doing that is they say, okay, what do the voices say? Who does it sound like to you? How do you feel when you hear those voices? What do they want you to do? And what helps you at those times? And what makes it harder for you? Why well, do you do that with anybody who's suffering? I, I, I'm gonna say that I agree with you mostly, but I, I think if I were to be, if I were king of policy, queen of policy, which some days I really wish I were because I think <laughs> things would make a lot more sense. My suggestion would be to make the drugs available and give the, the person a choice. And I say that based on experiences that I had when I was an editor and a reporter. And I, I followed a young woman with schizophrenia. I followed her journey and I documented it. And she 
she did do better and she liked her life far better on the drugs. And uh, she actually had a lot of what you're discussing where she had, was, uh, she had, she was a member of a, a clinical trial at the NIMH that I think is one of the best things they ever did, where they, they said, all right, if we have somebody who's had first episode psychosis and we give them a wraparound approach to care, keep them employed, keep them in school, keep them with their families, make sure that they have people to talk to, make sure that they have a way to let somebody know when they're hearing voices or they're seeing things and they're getting really scared, and also making clinical um, support available or uh, pharmaceutical support available to them, what would happen? Well, again, it's one of these, well, duh, they're going to get better. And she did. And and she went on to finish nursing school, which is a hard thing to do. And she remained living with her family. But I, I swear to you, I, I think just as somebody observing them, I think the fact that she was with such a loving family was a large part of why she was uh, successful. And and Whitney, how do we know that she wouldn't have done just as well without the drugs? That's why I say say make it a choice. I wouldn't take, and, and there are two other reasons why I say I'm not so willing to say that drugs are, um, an interference because for some people they may be I'm not contravening what you're saying I'm just saying that I've also seen and and heard testimonial from people who say in my world and in my way of going about my life I rely on this and it works for me and I think that's ultimately where we should get to is where we have availability instead of insurance companies or any other policymakers saying this is how it's going to be got it boom and that's it because you know there's there's a there's another psychiatrist he does what he, you know, he has explained to me that it's seen as controversial, but he actually uses antipsychotics to help people with a certain form of PTSD, a certain kind of... Oh my God, I know. And the VA... Wait, wait, wait. And it's awful. It's so reprehensible. But... And I understand that, and I've seen the data, and I and I get why that's awful, and it can be tragic. But he has found with people who have a certain type of childhood trauma that happened to them giving them a particular antipsychotic, a, a, you know, a second generation one, oh my God. gets rid of the edge, but he has had success. And he, no, we, no, he, wait, 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 I'm not, I'm not the one who does it. I'm telling you that this, I would like to see the research. Will you send it to me and have me on again? Because, and you said second generation antipsychotic, there's a myth that those are better than the earlier ones and they're not and they're very dangerous. And what all those anti, so-called antipsychotic drugs do is they suppress the whole central nervous system, which is why in Europe they're called neuroleptics instead right. of antipsychotics, because they can produce psychosis as well, and they often do. And, and what they by suppressing the whole central nervous system, what happens is those people are less likely to talk about delusions or hallucinations or fears and people think oh see they're doing better no no but let me finish the protocol so in he doesn't use it for every single person who who presents with the uh the trauma it's when the, the certain amount of other things he's doing with them doesn't seem to take hold then he suggests it if they try it then he titrates them off once the edge has gotten them down and or that has come off enough that they can talk and do other therapies and then he takes them off so, has, he, has he tried anything besides drugs and psychotherapy? Has he done trauma-informed approaches? Yes, as a matter of fact, he does. So, so, so his research is all observational. There is no actual clinical approach no. to uh, clinical data, but it's observational. But he he so did it out of desperation to help 
a lot of these people who had had sexual traumas, and that's when he found that it was helpful. And then there, there's a third. Well, anyway, I could just say to you on and on, for every uh, um, reservation or outright horror that you feel about these drugs, they have been used effectively. People on so-called antipsychotic drugs, their brains literally shrink and their lifespan is shortened by 20 to 30 years. That has been proven by a really hard-nosed scientist in Toronto, Canada, Philip Seaman. Well, okay, this is, a, this is a good point. So if that data exists, why does that not end up um, influencing our policies? People want to believe there's a quick and easy way out. And the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, which is funded by Big Pharma, tells everybody, if you've got a kid who is diagnosed with schizophrenia, it's not your fault, it's their brain, and you've got to get them on this, these drugs. People need hope. And they want to believe it's not their fault and they want we can tell them it's not their fault and say we're going to try and help them in other ways and I, your your friend who puts all these people who are traumatized on antipsychotics i think that's terrifying and i would like to know if he has tried a vast range of other approaches i've heard people say well i ordered electroshock because we've tried everything what had you tried every kind of drug we could think of. Everybody <laughs> listening to this should read Robert Whitaker's, both the book, Mad in America, and his book about psych drugs in general, which is scrupulously researched, and it's called Anatomy of an Epidemic. And then start thinking about what really does help. There's a website based on a conference that I organized at Harvard in 2011. It was for veterans, but all of these approaches help anybody who's suffering. And we have a website, and I can, uh, I can tell you how to find it rather than giving a long link. If you do uh, a search for, in quotes, a better welcome home, and then in quotes, Harvard Kennedy School, and then YouTube, you will see 28 five-minute videos, each one a non-pathologizing approach to reducing suffering, and it either has little or no risk. Everything from mindfulness and meditation to service animals, to involvement in the arts, to community volunteering, to my listening project, just listen to somebody, which is enormously helpful and healing. And the, I can guarantee you that your friend who's drugging traumatized people did not try all of those. I, well, I can't speak for him on, I can't defend him to you, but I would also say that I wouldn't be so quick as I, I, I fear you might be right now, just based on your own experiences, to condemn what he's doing. Because he and I have spent a lot of time talking about the kinds of trauma that he's dealing with. And he did try, he's a psychoanalyst, so he's not just a, a pharmaceutically oriented psychotherapist. I mean, a psychiatrist. He's a psychoanalyst, so he is trained in talking, and he's trained in helping people to derive meaning. I do think psychoanalysis, at its heart, is really about existential crises, and he knows how to work with people who are experiencing those. But he found in a certain um, cohort of his of his clients that they actually responded better, and it wasn't a fix-all; it was an adjunct. Yes. So yes, that's what they always say. So where do we? Um, where do we go from here? What is your outlook and your, you know, are you optimistic things would change and why are you not optimistic? And, you know, do you have an idea in your mind of what kinds of um, actions uh, could be taken to help create policies that support people staying well mentally instead of um, 
hooking them into a system that is hard to get free from from right. well every everything that we've been talking about to first start uh, secondly there is a website that I don't have the time to keep up and I don't have any help with it but um, it's got a lot of these this information on there it's got short videos of people who've been harmed by the system by diagnosis which is the start of all harm in the system because if they don't diagnose you, they can't do anything to you, good or bad. Um, and it's called Psych Diagnosis, P-S-Y-C-H, Diagnosis, as all one word, dot Weebly, W-E-E-B-L-Y, dot com. And there's a section on there uh, called um, Some Solutions. And so you can read about those on there. Um, I have some hope because... <clears throat> the movement of people, the, the political movement is growing of people who have been harmed by the system, who are speaking out about it and who are saying, here's what harmed me. And then here's what finally did help me. And it was almost never within the system. Occasionally it was. Um, there are conferences and organizations. I want to mention a couple of them. One you mentioned at the beginning, the International Society for Ethical Psychiatry and Psychology, or it may be Ethical Psychology and Psychiatry, ISEP, I-S-E-P-P. Um, you can, you can uh, look on its website. They have conferences every year. They have a, a newsletter that comes out every couple of months. And then there's another organization that's also wonderful, um, and it's called NARPA, National Association for Rights Protection and Advocacy. Uh, and you can look on their website. They have conferences every year. They post a lot of wonderful information. They have a listserv that you can uh, join and get on. Um, and so I do have hope because more people are talking about how to get off psych drugs safely. Because if you go off too fast for you, and there's no way to predict what's too fast for your body, um, you can get worse. And then the danger is that the traditional therapist will say, oh, you're even sicker than we thought. We got to get you on more of the drug or add another drug on another and another. And it's amazing how many people in the system are on multiple drugs at mm -hmm. once. And that's never been studied. The no, interactions of most Well, of I, just the, the lack of data on how to titrate somebody completely off of antidepressants is shocking to me. Oh, but, but people can go to the Icarus Project, I-C-A-R-U-S Project, um, and they can tell you, they've got a lot of information about how to get off the drugs gradually. Um, there's a book called Your Drug May Be Your Problem that also helps with that by Peter Bregan and David Cohen. And that was published a long time ago, but it's very helpful. Um, and the Icarus Project also can um, tell you, depending on where you live, of um, where there are practitioners who can prescribe drugs but help you get off them gradually enough so that it's safe for you. Well, thank you so much for all that information, Paula. I, I am you. I'm thank fascinated you. in all the work that you do, and and I don't agree with um, everything. I think in I think in theory we agree, but um, I am still I have seen people who are helped, and I think that um, what what I would like to see is more freedom of choice, and that's going to take people being more educated. So what you're doing is really critical. Thank you, and so is what you're doing. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Documental, Mapping the American States of Mind. I'm your host and producer, Whitney Fishburne. 
And if you'd like more podcasts like this, please visit my website at www.documental.substack.com. Thanks for listening.